Today from the Global Lane, China moves to control the price of rare earth metals used in microchips. In the short term, there are probably going to be higher prices for um, uh, things like uh, phones and everything else that we have chips in. And sends 100 Chinese agents posed as tourists to penetrate U.S. military bases. These look like saboteurs. In the UK, changing Church of England views on gay marriage and premarital sex. They do not believe in the power of the risen and resurrected Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to change and transform lives. American young people spend more time on TikTok than reading God's word or attending church. By far, the number one influence is arts and entertainment media. Not Asbury or Pirate's Cove, spiritual revival rising in this Muslim-majority country. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. America's next war may have already started, not with military weaponry, but over semiconductors and the rare earth minerals needed to manufacture them. China is now restricting exports of gallium and germanium, critical for military applications. Well, here to explain what this means is Gatestone Institute senior fellow, China analyst Gordon Chang. Gordon, it's always good to talk with you. So first, how important are these two rare earth metals and why is China restricting their export? Gallium and germanium are important because they're used in semiconductors. And semiconductors right now are the main area of contest between the United States and China when it comes to technology. Um, China makes or processes about oh, 80% or so of the world's gallium and 60% of the world's germanium. Um, and that gives it a dominant position, but it doesn't mean it is in total control. So there are things that we can do to um, break China's stranglehold. And the reason why this is important is because the United States is trying to prevent China from using chips in weapons that are going to be used against Americans. So we've got to do this, um, but it's a very messy process. What does this mean for the average American? Uh, higher prices for products, less availability for semiconductor manufacturers? In the short term, there are probably going to be higher prices for um, uh, things like uh, phones and everything else that we have chips in. And basically, that's everything. Um, because we have going to take some time to not only mine and process these two minerals and others, um, but also it just is a, a long, long process in terms of uh, switching in manufacturing. It can be done. Um, it just is creates a lot of friction. So yeah, prices will go up. Maybe there's an issue of availability, um, but these are temporary disruptions that we have got to get used to. We have been accustomed to a world where we get everything at very low cost. The world right now is turbulent. Uh, trade and globalization are in reverse. And that means we're going to live in a world which is not as convenient um, and is not as efficient as the one that we have been accustomed to. Okay, as you say, China provides these critical rare earth metals. Aren't there other sources? Well, there, there certainly are. Uh, there's other technologies. Um, we can reprocess uh, gallium and germanium and recycle them. Um, the, the best example of what's going to happen would be in 2010 when China um, uh, 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 banned the export of rare earths to Japan um, because they had a dispute in the East China Sea. Well, that export ban didn't last very long because the Japanese um, figured out how to get around it. One of them was that 
Chinese state enterprises continued to sell these rare earths to Japan despite the ban, because we got to remember that it's not only that we got to buy, the Chinese have to sell. And Chinese state companies, although they are subject to strict control by the Communist Party, they can find a way around these things. Um, and so um, what happened was Japan got all of the rare earths it needed, and eventually China had to drop its ban. And by the way, that ban was a violation of China's World Trade Organization obligations. Um, and um, yeah, that shows China is a predatory trader. Gordon, what should be done about this? How should the Biden administration respond to protect American national security interests? We should respond by uh, tightening our sanctions. You know, we've had uh, semiconductor restrictions, um, which were sort of half-hearted, which were sometimes enforced. What we need to do is realize that um, China is implacably a foe to the United States. It's declared a people's war on the U.S., it is maliciously going after us, and we need to defend ourselves with all of our might. Um, and that means, in the first instance, um, imposing the strictest of sanctions, which are relentlessly enforced. If we do that, then I think that we have a chance of prevailing, but not in the current situation where we're not really sure what we want to do. And there are a lot of voices in the U.S. that say, oh, you know, we should sell everything that China wants. Well, no, we shouldn't. The Wall Street Journal reports that Chinese nationals posing as tourists have accessed U.S. military bases and other sensitive sites maybe 100 times over recent years. So how concerned should we be about that? Well, it's definitely an espionage threat. There's a pattern there. Uh, China uses every point of contact with the United States to undermine and destroy our society. So if you have one or two, quote unquote, Chinese tourists who've tried to uh, get onto a U.S. military base, well, you could say, well, those are just isolated incidents, but not a hundred of them. Um, and we have to remember that we have all of these um, Chinese migrants coming across our southern border in unprecedented numbers. And although almost all of them are who they say they are, they're just desperate and given up on China, some of them appear to be saboteurs. There are packs of males in groups of five to 15 who um, are of military age, unaccompanied by family groups who pretend not to speak English, and some of them are known to have links to the Chinese military. Um, these look like saboteurs, which means that on the first day of a war in China, we are going to be fighting these saboteurs on our own soil, which means for the first time since the War of 1812, Americans will have a sustained fight on American soil. Okay, Gordon Chang, Gatestone Institute Senior Fellow, Thank you for sharing your time and insights. We appreciate you. God bless you. Well, God bless you, Gary, and thank you so much. Priests conducting same-sex weddings, biblical teachings giving a green light to homosexuality and premarital sex. A recent time survey of 5,000 Church of England clergy found those startling opinions. We're here to discuss details of the newspaper's findings. And to provide some insights on changing Anglican church views is Andrea Williams. She's chief executive of the UK group Christian Concern. So, Andrea, it's good to talk with you again. Share with us some of the specifics of this shocking survey. It is a shocking uh, survey, and it was on the front page of the Times in the United Kingdom. Uh, but I have to say that 
what strikes me very much about this survey it's, is that it continues to be part of a relentless campaign by a certain faction of the Church of England, by a certain faction of activist priests and activist journalists that really want to undermine the teaching of the church. So it was a survey that was put together by the time, so it's not properly peer-reviewed. They've gone to Crockford's, which is the directory of the Church of England, and no doubt there have selected 5,000, they have selected 5,000 names from the directory, 1,600 responded. But Kaya Burgess, the Times journalist, is an activist in this area. And then all the people that were spokes, spokespeople into this survey after that were also known activists. 53% of those surveyed approved same-sex marriage. 59% said that they would offer same-sex blessings. 67% support a ban on so-called conversion therapy. And Andrea, so, the, these are yeah. the views of church leaders, those who represent Christ or should, and share the word with others. So how are these doctrinal views and practices affecting church attendance? Well, the truth is this, and again, this is where the truth is absolutely borne out, that the churches where those that have departed from the truth preside, they are emptying out. And so it's no wonder that in this same survey, those same people were saying they don't think that in 10 years they're going to have a congregation. And I would say, why do they say that? Well, it's because they do not believe in the power of the gospel. They do not believe in the hope of the gospel. They do not believe in the power of the risen and resurrected Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to change and transform lives. So you've got priests, you've got a system of priests, you've got a system within the Church of England that permits men and women to enter priesthood who do not believe. Well, also uh, Christians who pray outside abortion clinics or preach the gospel on the street, they get arrest arrested. So it, it seems like Christianity is in decline in the UK, not only for the Church of England. So why has that occurred? What do you see happening in the days ahead? It's, it's tragic on many levels. It's really tragic that this beautiful, great nation of Britain that has led the world in many ways in Christianity in terms of shaping a way of life, shaping a culture around the gospel, around in our parliamentary system, in our schools, in our medicine, that, that, that in our judicial system, the idea that we could have forgotten the gospel, that we could have forgotten the place of Jesus Christ in public life, that is indeed a reality. What I find so stark is that the Church of England within the public institutions and those that represent the Church of England would seek to reflect the culture, ape the culture, rather than speaking of the glorious transformative news uh, good news that is found in Jesus Christ. So I think that we have forgotten our great heritage, but most of all, we've forgotten our passion, our love for Jesus. And we've been ashamed of Jesus and his words. We've been ashamed of the gospel. So that's certainly a corporate, that's where we are in corporate Christianity, in a, in a more formal sense of Christianity. But let me say this also, 
that there is a rising new amazing generation seeking to transform the culture. So I don't believe that everything is lost. And the churches that are growing, and indeed the Anglican churches that are growing, the Church of England churches that are growing, are the churches not that give in to liberal thinking, not that give in to the, 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 the culture of the world, but those that uphold the culture of Christ, those that speak of his truth, those are the ones that are growing. And so the Church of England churches, with the largest youth groups, are all of them orthodox. And, and that's what's very stark. So the ones that say we need to go the way of the world in order to be attractive to the world are the ones that are shutting their doors. The ones that are saying we want to go the way of Christ and we will uphold all of his doctrine and all of his truth and all of his moral character and virtues, those are the ones that are growing because they, they are exactly what the world needs to... To, to hear from right now. Okay, fidelity to God's word, and we need to pray for revival. From London, we do. Andrea Williams, we do. CEO of Christian Concern. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Andrea. God bless you. And to you too. Abandoning traditional views of Christianity and church. A new survey from the American Worldview Inventory shows a significant shift in church attendance and core religious beliefs. At the start of the COVID pandemic, 39% of American adults said they attended church at least once a week. Today, that number is down to 33%. Well, here to explain is Christian Polster, director of the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, George Barna. His new book, released this week, is Raising Spiritual Champions, Nurturing Your Child's Heart, Mind, and Soul. George, what do you make of these latest findings from AWVI? I'm sure you were not surprised. Well, now, as we did the research, I mean, we, we've seen the pattern unfolding over the course of the pandemic and since. And I think what's happened is a lot of adults in America have uh, sat back and tried to figure out what do I really need? What don't I need in my life? Things are getting more complicated, more difficult, more expensive. How do I make sense out of life? And as they've evaluated every institution and every relationship and every opportunity, one of the things that millions of Americans have concluded is, you know what, the church really wasn't adding much value to my life. I can probably get the same kind of value in other ways. And so that's exactly what's happening. It's not that people have necessarily given up on faith. They're simply looking to have it delivered and experienced through different channels, different pathways. And so we have a lot of people who used to regularly go to a physical church setting. Now many of them are using the media to find spiritual conversations and experiences. Others of them are simply pursuing that through personal relationships with other people they know who are going through the same kind of questioning process in their life trying to figure out what makes sense. So, you know, there, there's still hope that Americans will retain a deeper sense of spirituality, although right now they're scrambling just to make ends meet. George, what role does do the churches play in this? I mean, it, it seems like the church is becoming more like the culture, trying to win people that way, rather than have the culture embrace the church. 
Yeah, I would say over the last decade, Gary, one of the consistent results that that we've uncovered is that the culture is influencing churches more than churches are influencing the culture. And so as people are trying to come up with solutions to how to lead a meaningful life, how to find significance in life, how to achieve success, and even how to define that, churches aren't helping them. And a lot of that comes from how we discovered pastors measure success in churches. There tend to be five factors, uh, attendance, giving patterns, number of programs offered, number of staff people hired, amount of square footage that's been built out. It's great to measure stuff, but you get what you measure. And the reality is that Jesus didn't die for any of those five measures. So when we take our eyes off the cross and we cease to be organizations and communities that are focused on discipleship, but rather we're focused on growth and reputation and size, things of that matter, that's when we really lose our, our trail. George, in your new book, you talk about parents discipling their children, raising them up in the way of the Lord, embracing and putting their biblical beliefs into action. So why, in your opinion, are many parents falling short? Well, it's an issue of priorities. As we did uh, seven original research projects for that particular book, Raising Spiritual Champions, what we found is that parents have a lot of priorities. Their children are among them, but their children's faith tends not to be on the upper half of the list of priorities. And so what happens is faith gets pushed to the back burner, and parents tend to settle for some kind of religious activity. Maybe it's dropping their kids off at a Sunday school. Maybe it's just having religious music on in the car when they're transported from school back home in the afternoon. There are a lot of different things that parents are trying to balance and juggle, and faith is not a priority. And you devote a chapter to managing media exposure. How important is that? It seems kids are spending more time on TikTok than they are in church or reading God's Word. Yeah, it's a critical dimension because as we looked at what influences children the most, what we found was by far the number one influence is arts and entertainment media. And, and so one of the things that we discovered in doing all the research for the book is that parents are no longer trusted very much by their children when it comes to matters such as worldview. How do I make my decisions and choices from day to day? What they find is that their parents say one thing and do another, which has sent a, an important message to kids that their parents are just as confused as they are. So they say, I, I better not pay so much attention to my parents because they're still trying to figure it out as well. Instead, what we found is that they're paying attention to movies and video games and music and other forms of media because in those short bursts, those media vehicles are conveying a consistent worldview. It may not be the right one. It may not be the best one for the child, but it's consistent. And children are looking for consistency as they try to put together in their minds and hearts, how does the world work? Who am I within that world? How can I succeed within it? Okay, some good advice for parents. The book is Raising Spiritual Champions, Nurturing Your Child's Heart, Mind, and Soul. George Barnett, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for those insights. God bless you. Thank you, Gary. Just when you thought spiritual revival was breaking out only here in the United States, in places like Asbury College and Pirate's Cove, 
comes word of amazing revival in West Africa. World Harvest Global reports, God is pouring out His Spirit on the nation of Guinea-Bissau. Guinea-Bissau is a tiny poverty-stricken nation of only two million people. It's sandwiched between Senegal to the north and Guinea to the east. According to the World Factbook, 46% of its people are Muslim, 19% Christian, and 31% practice animist or folk religions. But look what happened recently when evangelist Jacob Ebersol held meetings there. The president of Guinea-Bissau, Muslim Umaro Sosoko Umbalo, attended the first night service. He also made a phone call to get a detained World Harvest Ministry sound and stage truck across the border. Ebersaw held several meetings beyond the capital of Bissau, and he took a video of young people storming the streets praising Jesus. He reports 18,477 documented decisions for Christ and thousands more after those meetings. Folks, Guinea-Bissau is one of the most unreached countries for the gospel in the world. If revival can break out in a Muslim-majority country, it can break out anywhere, and it has, even farther south in Zambia where 200,000 people reportedly attended Ebersol services there. Well, meanwhile, Ebersol says he's planning a gospel crusade in South Carolina next year. Also in early 2024, evangelist Sean Foyt says he'll launch the second half of his Let Us Worship State Capitals tour. He's already held events in 27 states and just finished his final capital tour for the year in Des Moines, Iowa. Folks, keep praying for revival to break out not only in America, but around the world. And as Foyt and Ebersol would tell you, their mass events are the result of consistent and persistent prayer. The revival that breaks out may seem spontaneous, but many intercessors have prayed for years. So keep praying. And remember that revival does not begin in West Africa and American capitals, but in our hearts. May God stir us, pour out His Spirit, and bring new life and blessing to our nation and the world. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Rumble. And until next time, be blessed.